shocking to hear that that many kids knew of an atheist in school. So I wanted to talk a little bit tonight, uh, touching base on that, uh, because our kids are taught a lot of this in college. Uh, they Even in, in high school, they teach it. They don't teach atheism, but they teach world religion, and it sometimes can be confusing. So something you can work with your kids with, go online. I got this lesson from Apologetics Press. Uh, it is Eric Lyons who did this, this survey. Uh, there are around 70 contradictions in the Bible that the atheists put out or, or people that don't believe in the Bible put out. We're not going to touch on all 70 of them. This one talks about six, and we're not going to touch on all six. We're going to pick two and go from there tonight. So the title of the lesson is The Myth of Factual Bible Contradictions. And you're going to see me use air quotes a lot because this is, this is something that's hard to believe is taught in the world. We're going to start out with a small story about a young man from West Virginia that is a factual story. Uh, his preacher described the young man as a solid Christian. He was a devout follower of Christ who was enthusiastic about living for Jesus. From the time he was a young boy, his grandmother had taken him to worship God on the first day of every week. After becoming a Christian, he had, according to his preacher, attended every service of the church. He grew in faith and began taking part in the leading of the congregation in prayer. Later, he personally taught the congregation by occasionally standing before the church and reading the Bible to them aloud, and at times even delivering sh short talks. Before departing for the university about a, uh, an hour away from their hometown, the young 18-year-old boy from West Virginia was considered by those <clears throat> who knew him best as a dedicated Christian with impressive potential, one whose shield of faith would stand strong when, wildness, when worldliness attacked and whose foundation would remain firm when shaken by the devil's doctrines. Doesn't sound like any different from our children, does it? You know, we teach them what, uh, how to come to church, how to participate in class, how to study, uh, and we feel like they're, they're ready to take on the world. But well, we're going to find out what happened to this young man shortly. Sadly, on a short time passed before the young man lost his faith. He went to college as a believer in, in the God of the Bible and came home an enlightened skeptic. Again, here's the air quotes. He's enlightened and he's a skeptic now. One of the first classes he took at the university was an elective course on world religions. Initially, he thought he could handle whatever questions came his way about Christianity. He had memorized numerous verses in the Bible. He knew all about the uniqueness of the church. He even could tell people what to do in order to have their sins forgiven. It took, however, little time for one teacher in one class in one university to turn this solid Christian into an unbeliever. What led to the demise of the young man's belief in God and the Bible as his, his word? Why did the young Christian's faith crumble so easily? It all began in the inability to handle 
the factual discrepancies that his newly found friends had convinced him were, were in the Bible. Uh, <clears throat> when asked to explain to his teacher and fellow classmates how hundreds of Bible contradictions Bible contradictions, how to explain them, he could not and would not because he didn't know how. After being bombarded with hundreds of questions that he was incapable of answering, eventually he began defy, de denying the truths he once believed. One of the lessons in the book on Sunday morning tells the students they may give you hundreds of questions. Take one at a time. When you take a test at school, you do one question at a time. When you've got a task at work, you do one task at a time. You can't answer 100 questions being bombarded at you. Have the, have the unbeliever give you his most strong defense against the Bible and work with that one and keep on topic until you are, you are satisfied with, that you answered it. Don't try to answer all 100 of them. The old story goes, how do you eat an elephant? one bite at a time. You can't eat the whole elephant one time. You eat it one bite at a time. So you have to take these topics one topic at a time. Not long after the young man's transformation, he gave one of his childhood mentors, the preacher of the church where he was reared, a document entitled Factual Discrepancies. And this was Eric Lyons. He says, that document of which I have a copy contains nearly 70 alleged factual contradictions that supposedly are found within the Bible. Because this frustrated young man from West Virginia who had been taught the Bible his whole life was unable to answer these allegations, he gave up on the God of the Bible. His faith in the inerrant, inspired word of God was replaced with the vacaciousness of a skeptic's uncertainty, all because he was unable to defend the truth against the vicious, frequent attacks leveled against it by infidelity or unbelief. Now, you're going to hear a lot of words that are not my words. They are big words. Some of them are going to be Greek. They're going to be hard for me to pronounce, so bear with me on those. And when printing this off, some of the words all ran together, and I wasn't able to get them all separated before tonight, so I'm having to break some of my words down. But Eric does a good job starting off here. Uh, the story of this young man is not, is not untypical for all of our, our kids going to college, going to high school. Not all colleges are going to have this in, in front of you. Hopefully at Christian colleges, you're not going to see this, but in private sector, you may may come across this. I wonder how many times this true story could be rehearsed by mothers, fathers all over the world. And many grandmothers, like the one mentioned above, have seen their work destroyed by the hands of, of unbelief. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 15. We're going to read about the works of our hands. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with silver or with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will, 
will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work and what sort it is. If one's work, if anyone's work which has, he has built on and it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so through fire. The work we are talking about here is what you and I put into our children. We try to teach them, we try to raise them in the right way, the best way we can, but the world creeps in, so our work is going to be tested when it's put out there. Fire is going to come up on it and test it, and hopefully it will come back pure and whole, but it will be tested. How many young college students leave home as solid Christians and many and return four years later as enlightened skeptics, as this young man did here? This comes from, uh, like I say, the Apologetics Press. It is considered, it's called Reason and Revelation. Uh, you can go there and see all 70 of these myths of the Bible contradictions uh, if you want to, and please do by all means, because like I say, I've, I've talked to the kids in class. If they'll go in and study this and look through it, they'll, they'll be able to defend these, these darts that are coming at them. This issue of reason and revelation is dedicated to answering, this one is dedicated to answering six, and we're going to look at two of them, of the 70 alleged factual Bible contradictions the young West Virginian was presented at the university. It is Eric's and my uh, hope that we can sh see how easily these allegations can be answered logically and truthfully. The numbers of each contradiction may uh, match those of the list that the young man was given. So each one in this has got a different number on it, so it corresponds with what his paper was given to the, the preacher. So each one of these will have a number. Then uh, you can go to the, their website, and it, this one, these will be under alleged discrepancies in the, in the selection of uh, Apologetics Press. The one we're going to look at right now is contradiction number two. It's animals or man created first. So right out of the bat, they're going to Genesis, first chapter of Genesis, to, to, to pull out a contradiction. Animals or man created first. After reading the first two chapters of the Bible, some skeptics, in an attempt to disprove the Bible's inerrancy, have accused the writer of Genesis of erring in regard to the record of events occurring on day six of creation. While Genesis 1, 24 through 27 plainly indicates that man was created and the animals after the animals, uh, critics claim that Genesis 2, 18 and 19 teaches that man was created before animals. Let's turn to Genesis 1, 24 through 27. Genesis 1, 24 through 27. Uh, then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and every, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, Genesis 2, 18 and 19. And the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. Uh, I will make him a helper compatible for him. Out of the ground, the, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Skeptics insert, uh, skeptics assert that such language by the author of Genesis proves that the Bible was not divinely inspired. So they're taking the words of Genesis 1 and 2 because Genesis 2 talks about uh, them creating man and then it talks later on in the, in the chapter, verse there about them creating the animals. They're taking those out of context. So they're looking at it in a way that, like I say, it's just plumb out of context. So some people are, you were fixing to find out, they're going to try to change the terminology to make it suit, the, suit it, but we'll find out that's wrong as well. Some Bible students resolve this alleged contradiction by explaining that the Hebrew verb translated formed could have been translated had formed. In his exposition of Genesis, H.C. Leopold wrote, without any emphasis on the sequence of Acts, the account here records the making of the various creatures and the bringing of them to man. That in reality they had been made prior to the creation of man and is so entirely apparent from, the chap from chapter 1 as not to require explanation. But... The reminder that God had molded them makes obvious his power to bring them to man and so in quite apparent mentioned here. It would not, in our estimation, be wrong to translate, here's a Hebrew word, yatser, as a plural perfect in this instant. He had, he had molded instead of he molded. The instance of the critics upon the plain past is partly the result of the attempt to make chapters 1 and 2 clash as many points are possible. So they're trying to make, change the terminology to make the clashing happen instead of it being an, uh, a complement to each other. Hebrew scholar Victor Hamilton agreed with Leopold's assessment of Genesis 2.19 as he also recognized that it is impossible to translate formed as had formed. Kyle and uh, another gentleman here stated in the first volume of the Old Testament commentary that our modern style of expressing the same thought which the Holy Spirit via Moses intended to communicate would be simply this, God brought to Adam the beast which had formed. Adding even more uh, credences to this interpretation is the fact that, here's one of my words that got all mashed together, uh, in the New International Version, and uh, it's a verb in verse 19, it was not simply 
past tense, but rather as a plural perfect. It says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. Uh, although Genesis chapter 1 and 2 agrees even when, here's the Hebrew word, yatzer, is translated f simply formed, it is important to note that four Hebrew scholars mentioned above and the translators of the New International Version all believe that it could or should be rendered had formed and as Leopold acknowledged, those who deny the, this possibility do so at least partly because of the in, insistence of making the two chapters disagree. So they're wanting them to, to disagree. They're not wanting to, them to work together. So they keep pushing these, these reasons. The main reason that skeptics do not see harmony in the events recorded in the first two chapters of the Bible, especially regarding the order of God's creation, whether vegetation, birds, land animals, man, etc., is because they fail to realize the fact that Genesis 1 and 2 serve uh, different purposes. Chapters 1, including, including cha uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, focuses on the order of the creation events. So it's looking at the order that it was put into place and made. Chapter 2, starting in verse 5 through 25, simply provides more detailed information about some of the events mentioned in chapter 1. So they're complementing. One of the examples he gave uh, in the book, I believe, is if you went to an amusement park and you rode uh, roller coasters, and you start talking about the roller coasters, you start talking about the most exciting roller coaster. You don't talk about the boring one. You, you talk about the most important thing it, that happened when you first went into the park. So that's, this is how the, the topic should be addressed. Instead of uh, chapter one and two clashing, chapter two is a complement to it. It is simply adding more to it than just the order of, of the creation. Chapter 2 never was meant to be a uh, regurgitation of chapter 1, but instead serves its own unique purpose to develop in detail more important features of the creation account, especially the creation of man and his surroundings. Uh, as Kenneth Kitchen noted in his book, Ancient, uh, Ancient Orient and Old Testament, Genesis 1 mentions the creation of man as the last of a series uh, and without any details, wherein, whereas in Genesis 2, man is the center of the interest of a more specific detail are given about him and his setting. Failure to recognize the complementary nature of the subject, distinction between the skeleton outline of all creation from chapter 1 on the other hand, in concentration in detail on man and his immediate environment on the other, which is from chapter 2. So they are complementary. They are to work together. The fact is Genesis 2 does not present a creation account at all, but prepurposes the completion of God's work of creation as set forth in chapter 1. So it's just finishing it and giving in great detail on it. Chapter 2 uh, is built on the foundation 
of chapter one and represents no different tradition than the cha that first chapter or the account in the order of the order of creation. In short, Genesis chapter one and two are harmonious in every way. You know, you and I know this. It's just people that do not believe in the Bible. They're they're nitpicking. They're looking for anything that they can find that one place it says one thing and another place it says another. So they do work together. They are harmonious in every way. What may seem as a contradiction at first glance is a essentially a more detailed account. The text in Genesis 2.19 says nothing about the relative origins of man and beast in terms of chronolo chronolo chronological order, chronology, <laughs> but merely suggests that the animals were formed before being brought to, to man in order to be named. If one still rejects both the possibility of Yatzer being translated had formed and the explanation of the two chapters being worded differently because of the purposes they serve a cre final let's see they serve a final response to the skeptics allegations is that the text never says that there were no animals created on the sixth day of creation after Adam although in his judgment it is very unlikely that God created a special group. Some people even say that there was a special group of animals created after Adam was created so that he could name them. The rest of them, I guess, never got named. But we don't see that depicted in the Bible anywhere. But they try to justify that these animals that they're talking about in chapter 2 were different animals that Adam was brought before and was named. So this is what our kids are being taught. They're being pushed on out in the world. So this is stuff that I'm trying we're trying to get them prepared for with this book. And it's it's a boring class because it's not exciting to talk about and to read about. I told them if you don't like me lecturing, anytime you hear something that's a little different than what you're used to hearing, bring it up. Let's talk about it. I said I don't like to stand here and lecture to them. So hopefully they'll pick up on it and it changes topics after about chapter five a little bit so that'll be a little difference on them so there are no new animals created after after man was created uh, as some commentators hold hold a view on after his comments concerning the translation of this hebrew word victor hamilton indicated that the creatures mentioned in chapter two uh, refer to a creation of a special group of animals which is what I was talking about uh, but we know that these these are it doesn't hold hold any water to it uh, so both of these long time Bible students recognize that uh, the text over never says that there were there was two other gentlemen here they're talking about said they were never any special animals created after Adam but uh, all the animals were created either on day five or day six before the possibility of even after Adam's uh, creation. However, unorthodox or unlikely this particular position might be, it does serve as a, uh, another reason why skeptics have no foundation upon which to stand when they assert that the contradiction can exists between the two chapters. So... 
in short, they, they try to push changing the words around to, from form to had formed and to confuse it, to make it harder to understand. They want you to think that there were animals created after the fact of man, after he'd been created, to let Adam rename or name these group, but the others evidently didn't get named. Uh, but we see it as, a, as a two chapters working together. And we can see that one is chronologically done and one is just explaining why it was done, the way it was done, and, and what was to be done later. Well, that is the first one that we were going to talk about. Some of the other ones that they have in here is a, it's a slip of mind where there's words are changed around. Uh, another one was uh, motives matter. So you can go to his website and, and pull these up and, and read about them. Uh, there was a coin called a, a Derrick, D-A-R-I-C. Uh, they say there's a contradiction over that. And how uh, one of the contradictions was, in what order did Satan tempt Jesus? Uh, some of the books talks about the temptations being in one order and another one kind of changes the order around. We're not going to get into that one. Uh, the last one we're going to talk about uh, it's listed as cock-a-doodle-doo twice. Uh, perhaps the most famous alleged Bible contradiction centers on Peter's triple denial of Jesus and the crowing of a rooster. So can you imagine the crowing of a rooster being a contradiction? They pull it out and they point out there's a difference in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as to what the crowing is talking about. <clears throat> and all of us are raised in the country here, we know what a rooster sounds like crowing. Do they crow just in the morning? The ones around my house crow all day long and they crow at night, they crow, they crow all the time. So uh, we're gonna look at this one real quick. All right, for years skeptics have challenged that Mark's account of this event blatantly contradicts the other gospel accounts thus supposedly proving the imperfection of the scriptures. Even Bible believers have questioned the difference surrounding this event, yet relatively few have taken the time to understand them. Whenever people ask us about Peter's denials and the differences between the uh, gospel accounts, we often fail to give them an adequate answer to their question. Turn to 1 Peter 315. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. What he's trying to pull out here is we should be ready to give this defense to anyone that asks these questions. I've told the students, there's going to be questions you may ask about this, these subjects here that I can't answer, but we will find the answers. We'll search the scriptures, we'll get with the elders, we'll get with other men of the congregation that might have a little more experience with this, these topics, and we will find the answers that, that will satisfy all of us. So we've got to be prepared to give an answer to these people. 
This young man here was not prepared. He was not ready to give an answer to these questions that he was asked. And this one here is one of them, uh, the rooster crowing. It says, this lack of understanding and poor defense of God's word has led skeptics to become more confident in their position. In other words, that the Bible is not God's word and has caused some Bible believers, like the young West Virginia man that was mentioned earlier, to abandon their position on the infallibility of the scriptures. These passages in question are found in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 13. Matthew, Mark, or Matthew, Luke, and John all quoted Jesus as saying that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. So each one of them reported, recorded that only one crowing would happen. And we're going to go through each one of these here and see what they say. Uh, Matthew 26, 34, Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. From Luke 22, 34. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. John 13, 38. Jesus answered him, Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. After the third denial uh, actually took place, these three writers recorded that Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled exactly the way he said it would. And, immediate, uh, and in, now in Matthew 26, uh, 74, the latter part in 75, it says, And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the words of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Luke 22, 60 and 61. I got to back up and see where I lost it at. It says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord. He had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. All right, in Mark 14 and 30, it says, Peter then denied again for the third time, and immediately the rooster crowed. Oh, that was, math. That was a different one. Matthew, Matthew, Luke, and John all indicated that Peter denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. All right, Mark 14 and 30 is the different one. Mark's account, however, says otherwise, he recorded Jesus' prophecy as, as follows. Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Uh, following Peter's first denial of Jesus, we learned that he went out on the porch and the rooster crowed. This was Mark's 14 and 68. It says, uh, after, Peter, after, after Peter's third denial... Of Jesus, the rooster crowed a second time. Uh, then Peter called to mind uh, the word that Jesus had said to him, and this is Mark 14:72. Before the rooster crows twice, 
you will deny me three times. Mark differs from the other writers in that he specified the rooster crowed once after Peter's first denial, which the other gospels did not talk about. This one, this one records it. And again, after the third denial, the rooster crowed the second time. But do the differences represent a legitimate contradiction? Not at all. They don't, they don't represent a contradiction. All right, we're going to look at a, an illustration, which we'll, we'll see kind of collaborates this. A family of three went to a high school football game uh, together for the first time. The father and son had been several, to several games prior to this one, but the mother never had been fortunate enough to attend a high school football game until now. After, the mother, uh, after entering the stadium, uh, the father tells the son, see 16-year-old son named Kerry, the father's name is Ricky, tells Kerry that we will meet him right outside gate 12 after the buzzer sounds. Having filed away the instructions, Kerry races to the stands to ensure that he sees the opening kickoff. Ricky's wife, Vicki, who, who did not hear the instructions he gave Kerry, then asked him when, were, or when they were going to see Kerry again. He responds, we are going to meet him right outside the gate. We just entered after the fourth buzzer. After the fourth buzzer? There's a difference there, isn't it? All right. He told Carrie after the buzzer sounded that they would meet uh, outside the gate. But did, he, did, did Ricky contradict himself? He didn't contradict himself. No. At that particular stadium, the, the timekeepers normally sound a buzzer after each quarter. But when we say at the buzzer, or when we speak of a, a buzzer beater, such as in basketball, usually we are referring to the final buzzer. Kerry was familiar with the sports lingo, and thus Ricky told him he would see him after the buzzer sounds. All right, so his son understood what he was talking about. His wife, on the other hand, having never attended a football game in her life, uh, was with them uh, and not had never been to a football game in her life, was given different instructions. In a more precise way, Ricky instructed her that Carrie would meet them not after the first, second, or third buzzer, but after the fourth and final buzzer, which marks the end of regulation play. Ricky knew that he told his wife that Carrie will meet them at the buzzer sounds she would have expected to meet him after the first buzzer sounded. She would have been expecting this because it was a buzzer. Thus, Ricky simply informed Vicky of a more detailed manner. Surely no one would claim Ricky had contradicted himself. So we can see it in this example, but people draw out this version, the illustrations of the, of, in the Bible, and they say that it's a contradiction. In a similar way, no one should assume that because three of the gospel writers mentioned one crowing, while Mark mentioned two crowings, that a contradiction exists. Realistically, there were two rooster crowings. However, 
It was the second one, the only one Matthew, Luke, and John mentioned that was the main crowing, like the fourth buzzer was uh, the main buzzer. Of the foot at the football game. In the first century, and like I said earlier, if you live on a farm, you hear a rooster crow all the time. In the first century, roosters were accustomed to crowing at least twice during the night. The first crowing, which only Mark mentioned in 14, Mark 14, 68, usually occurred between 12 and 1 o'clock. So I don't know. I've never stayed up long enough to count the hours and when these roosters are crowing, but evidently in the first century they crowed around 12 to 1 o'clock. Relatively few individuals ever heard or acknowledged this crowing. Uh, it is likely that Peter never heard it, uh, else surely he would, or he, he is, in his slumber he would have been conscious and would have awakened. The second crowing took place long, uh, not long before daybreak. And we all hear the roosters crow out here around daylight. And that's when the, the final crowing that, was, that happened was, was heard. And why? Because it was the time of uh, night just before daybreak that roosters crowed the loudest. Uh, and their shrill clarion, or their loud voice, was useful in summoning laborers to work. You know, didn't have alarm clocks back then. They had bugles, and we hear, we'll read about them using bugles in a few minutes, but they used these roosters to wake people up, and they were bred so that they could be very loud. They would wake you up, and they were used to, to, to summon people to work. This crowing of the roosters served as, as an alarm clock to those of the ancient world. Mark recorded, therefore, for you do not know when the master comes, let me back up. I missed a sentence. Mark recorded early in his gospel account that Jesus spoke of this main crowing when he said, Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, uh, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. That was taken from Mark 13.35. Interesting, even when workers were called to their labors via artificial devices, the bugle, they were summoned to come to work with, with another noise. This time was, of the night was still called or was designated as the proverbial phrase, the cock crowing. So if you lived in the first century and your boss said to you to be ready to, for work when the rooster crows, you would know he meant that is time when the work begins just before daybreak, daybreak. So you'd have to be ready to go to work by that time. If you said uh, that work begins at the second crowing of the rooster, likewise, you would know that it meant the same thing. Work begins just before daylight. So whether it was the first crowing or the second crowing was, is a different time, but if it's the crowing, if you call it the, the cock crowing, it was the daylight crowing as well. These are not contradictory statements, but rather two ways of saying the same thing. When Jesus said, and this is taken from Matthew 26, 34, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, it is obvious that he was using the phrase, the rooster crows, in the more conventional way. Mark, on the other hand, specified that there were two crowings. 
In the same way that the husband gives the wife more detailed instructions concerning a football game, Mark used greater precision in recording this event. It may be that Mark quoted the exact words of Jesus while the others, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, saw fit to employ the less definite style to indicate the same time of night. Or perhaps Jesus made both statements, and after Peter declared that he never would deny the Lord, Jesus could have repeated the first comment and added another detail, saying, Even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, which is from Mark 14:30. We cannot be certain why Mark's account is worded differently, uh, differently than the other writers, but by understanding the, that root, the rooster crowing commonly was used to indicate a time just before daybreak, we can be assured that absolutely no contradiction exists among the gospel writers. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the truth. <clears throat> we can take all 70 of the discrepancies that are listed there, and I would suggest to go to the website and look them up and see what they are so that you can prepare your students, your sons, your daughters, I'm, I'm going to look through them and see what all they do say. I know a lot of them are going to be nitpicky like these are. They're just trying to turn words around to change it to where it will confuse our young students. And if you can confuse them enough by cramming a hundred of them at them, it makes them lose their faith. They can't defend a hundred. How do they defend a hundred? One at a time. One at a time. <clears throat> In conclusion... What would have happened to the young man in West Virginia if he had taken the time to investigate these matters? Where would he be today? Had someone been able to show him how these factual, and air quotes around that, factual Bible contradictions are anything but factual? Surely by now you realize that the blows of a critic's axe need not shake a Christian's faith. Indeed, almost 2,000 years of skeptical blows against God's forest of inspiration has stood unmarred. They can throw an axe against God's word all day long, and it's going to be the same today, tomorrow, and even in, in the past. So it, it's not going to change. We have to know where to find it, how to find it, and the better we prepare our students, our sons and daughters, our granddaughters, grandsons, the better they will be able to stand these darts and these axe blows. I know it hasn't been a lesson to try and convert anybody, but it is a lesson that is definitely needed to our, our men and women, boys and girls that are going to college, even us teachers we need to see these things because we don't know what our kids are going through it in, in college anymore uh, when I went to school it was different than they are today they're taught different things they're pushed different things but we do offer an invitation anytime that we are present and in God's sight we anyone that may be in need of uh, 
baptism. You may be in need of prayers. We offer the invitation at every opportunity we have. Uh, if you are in need of this, we ask that you come together as we stand and sing. Thank <clears throat> you.